You're listening to The Boz Show, the socially conscious podcast for leaders. All right, Lydia, welcome to The Boz Show. How's everything going? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me. So you are the CEO of a major company that helps with education and financial investments. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, I, I, one day someone will say a major company and that will be true. For now, we are a startup mm-hmm. and we are in the education space. Our ambitions are big and it is mm-hmm. to solve education financing for globally mobile Africans. Mm-hmm. And the story there is basically uh, market failure. We are linking mm-hmm. a lot of demand that is currently being unmet with Mm -hmm. a supply for financing. And Mm -hmm. this is in the space where African students are going to global universities and they do not have ways of financing it. Mm -hmm. The way to think about it, Baz, is that many people in your audience are likely to have been in a class with a student from China, with a student from India. Mm -hmm. Very few people in your audience will name five people from different African countries that have been in their classroom in Mm -hmm. an American campus. And that's not because African students are not looking to join American campuses. The world Mm -hmm. is flat. People want to study in the best schools globally. Mm -hmm. It is because they cannot fix the financing. And that's where we come in. That's interesting. So So you're linking them up with the opportunity to seek education in the United States and help them pay for it to attain education in the U.S., is that correct? So think of it as plain vanilla student loans, except that the person receiving it is, like me, born in Kenya or Nigeria Mm -hmm. or Cameroon or Cairo. So that's amazing. So how do most people pay when they do come for it? If they didn't have this option, they end up paying everything from scratch. They don't apply they can't get anything from French aid or anything like that? So the way international student financing works is that it's mostly self-pay. Mm-hmm. So, and the reason why it's self-pay is that for many universities, bars, international students are what they consider a cash cow. And mm-hmm. that are, those are, that term, uh, harsh as it sounds, is, is a term that, I, when I've spoken to internet university officials, it's a term that they use. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that in many universities, international students will be priced at two or three X, the mm-hmm. domestic and um, in-state local tuition price. Yeah. And so the international students help subsidize foreign students. So it's pricey. And because mm-hmm. it's pricey, and it helps subsidize other things. Uh, It is something that universities have as a priority, but also have very little incentive to provide aid towards. Yes, they Mm. want diversity, but you know, the world has many um, parents and households that can afford uh, the the sticker price. And so they go into those markets and they fill the international student bucket if you will with Mm. students from this variety or this wide range of countries very few of them end up being african and the reason for that is simply that it is hard to afford households cannot uh, Mm. afford the the tuition so that's where we're stepping in so to your question how are the students currently affording it first they're paying those who can afford and those who are not able Mm. to afford it but they simply don't enroll so my own story is that after finishing, I was really lucky to get a scholarship to go to Cornell. Mm-hmm. And on the back of finishing Cornell, I wanted to do additional uh, graduate work. And the first bunch of places that gave me offers, I, I was in public health or was very keen on public health at the time. I got mm-hmm. an offer to the 
Harvard School of Public Health, and they did not give me a single dollar. And really, like, Harvard did not oh, give a single dollar. Oh, they did not <laughs> give a single dollar. Um, and so I did not enroll. And you know, every year you keep reapplying. Mm -hmm. And when you don't get the money and you don't have the money in your savings, you put that dream to the side and you apply yeah. the following year. So that's what many students are doing until some point they, you know, hit the lottery and mm -hmm. they win, and therefore they get a scholarship or they find other ways of financing. The other ways of financing is the bucket we're stepping into. Mm -hmm. There are some entities that are in this space already. None of them are focusing exclusively on the needs of an African student, which is mm -hmm. where we're coming in. But there is a recognition already that mm -hmm. this is a big area and people are already coming uh, to solve it. And so we're excited because the demand is there. We just need to make sure that the supply of financing is there and therefore we can create a big market. So, I mean, you know, first of all, universities here are expensive, right? There's, there's a lot of college debt and you end up paying here your entire lives. Like people go here, they go to undergrad, they, they ultimately take out $150,000, $200,000, you know, maybe, and then they'll end up spending the next 30, 40 years of their life in debt, paying it off. Um, and, and that's an unfortunate cycle of, of sort of everyone is used to it. Um, how is it different for for students from Africa? Do they are do they have do they have this opportunity to to first of all take out such a large loan and do they have to spend their whole lives paying it back or how does that work? So I think there are a couple of ways of thinking about the student uh, loan problem in the U.S. and I think your question has several parts to it. One side of it is the problem of student financing in the U.S., which one side of it is cost mm. and the fact that the, the cost has been increasing in, mm. in really significant ways and the fact that that increase in cost is not pegged to outcomes necessarily so mm -hmm. any university for profit not for profit can offer any program and they don't have to be showing results in order for students to be able to take out a loan to go there mm -hmm. and that is in part because in in this country the as an american to get a loan the underwriting is very lax. It's not yeah. as though you need to only be going to computer science in highly selective schools to get a loan. Mm -hmm. And because the, the, the student loan system is structured that way, the incentives for um, good behavior aren't mm -hmm. always there. And as a result, you're having students taking loans to go into programs that really cannot justify the cost mm -hmm. that they have based on the outcomes in terms of a student mm. job and a student salary. So that is one layer of problems and that needs to be- Pretty much cut out liberal arts. <laughs> I, I actually don't know that it's necessarily that. I just simply think that there, it has become an industry that is baked in a particular way and it does need to rethink some of the dynamics in there. And I think COVID has pushed some of this mm -hmm. uh, re-examination, right? There is a lot of existential angst among universities uh, and students will, uh, and parents will hopefully be able to make different choices as mm -hmm. this conversation continues to unfold. So that's one layer of problems. What is ailing the US higher education uh, sector and the cost, uh, the, the costs that it's charging? There's a separate problem, which is a, a problem of access. And mm -hmm. the problem of access for African students, for example, is one where for financial access in the US, you're going to need uh, an co-signer you're going to need a credit history you're going to mm -hmm. need collateral you will need the kinds of things that uh, a person simply an ordinary kenyan will not have mm -hmm. right 
And because an ordinary Kenya will not have that, Kenyan will not have that, you're not likely to get a student loan as a mm. Kenyan and or as a foreign student. Mm -hmm. So then how do we um, make sure that a person with potential can still get a loan is that we have an alternative underwriting system that is banking on your potential future income so that we are not penalizing you because your father earns a thousand dollars a month but we're looking at you as an incredibly smart student who will get into a university and be able to uh, get an opportunity now the the third element in the question you're asking is is it okay that people are paying privately to have higher education and mm -hmm. i think that is a question on which people can fall on different sides of that debate. Mm -hmm. I think that for primary and secondary education, there is a very big case for public provision. For mm -hmm. higher education, I am the biggest beneficiary of the higher income that comes from it. And yeah. many, in many places in the world, including mm -hmm. you know, Sweden, where I have my families from, even Kenya, where I'm from, mm -hmm. the government provides you a loan Mm -hmm. to enable you to go to university and some of those loans might be easier to pay off because the costs are not astronomical compared to the US but many many countries mm -hmm. have a private mechanism a market-based mechanism by which a student who wants to go to higher education pays for it it's not on the public coffers now mm. for globally mobile students the price tag is higher but the principle is still the same yeah. you are paying for it it's not the public sector meaning a government that is taking care of that of that uh, bill so then if the question is should international students be saddled with debt i think a way to flip that question on its head is to say do we agree that opportunity is evenly spread globally and that some opportunities you can only access mm -hmm. them if you have some money and should you have the choice mm -hmm. to have access to a loan should you choose to Nobody yeah. is making you do anything. If you want that opportunity, can you make that choice? And that is the cho that's the space we are playing. It is to increase the range of choices that those students have. So, so what does the process look like for a student from Kenya, for example, once they graduate high school? What, how do they think about college? I, I'm pretty sure it's a different thought process, and you know, the U.S. is so far away. So, what? How does that? You know, what do they think? What does the average Kenyan student think when he's thinking about college? So the first thing in answering that question is to say that for a typical African parent, education occupies the same space in the Maslow's pyramid as food and shelter. Mm -hmm. Parents will give up everything to mm -hmm. give their children a chance at a good education. We mm -hmm. still believe that mm -hmm. education is a great leveler. Education is a great leveler and a great enabler and a changer of, of a transformer of social possibilities. So mm -hmm. it's really, really very important. So as many students as possible that qualify will apply for mm -hmm. places university. And this is where it gets really interesting, Baz. Mm -hmm. For the 10 most populous African countries, mm -hmm. uh, the data shows that it's roughly one university per million in the population, per mm -hmm. million inhabitants of the, of, of the country. One, one, one person gets one in. One university. We have one university per million inhabitants in the 10. Wow populous countries mm -hmm. just for, for perspective in the u.s it's roughly one university per sixty thousand inhabitants mm -hmm. for south africa which is the country that comes off best in, in on the african continent mm -hmm. it is something like one university per three hundred and ninety thousand inhabitants mm -hmm. so that already gives you a sense of scarcity there mm -hmm. is 
very talented young people for whom education is very important, both for them and their families. But mm -hmm. the university in itself is a scarce commodity mm -hmm. on the continent because of capacity. Then come questions around quality. When we think about global rankings for all their faults, very few African universities come in there, fall in there. So for students mm -hmm. on the higher end of achievement, they will want to look broadly. Where can I find a uh, uh, a university place and then the next thing is that because you have this demand uh, which is not met by the supply of university places you have a very high interest in global education so the average highly motivated highly qualified african student who is finishing high school is thinking how do i get an opportunity in a university or in a global university mm -hmm. and that's something that we at 8b are actually responding to and mm -hmm. that's in part because also of my experience which is when i finished high school in kenya mm -hmm. my my story is that i had to wait for two years before i could enroll in university in kenya because mm -hmm. we just have so much backlog because of what i have told you about capacity yeah that you have to wait your turn um, while waiting my turn, I got a scholarship and, mm -hmm. and I went abroad, uh, which means the place that I did not take was taken by, you know, one of the many other thousands of qualified mm -hmm. students who simply had no place to, to go in. Uh, but what was interesting is that how I found that scholarship buzz is that I accidentally mm -hmm. ran into information. I went to a friend's place. There was a newspaper. I opened the classified page. This is back mm -hmm. in the day when you know classifieds were where you found right. information. And I saw an ad for this scholarship. And that journey of knowing you're ambitious, you want to go somewhere, you don't really know where you want to go, and randomly running into information that is not curated for you mm -hmm. is just too many sets of accidents that need to happen yeah. in order to match opportunity and talent. And so what mm -hmm. we're doing at 8B is that we have a section of our website that is just dedicated to providing information about global universities. How do you apply? What is a good essay what is a recommendation mm -hmm. what does it look like what is the sat when do you do it where all those things are really important and not just for american universities but for global universities mm -hmm. in order again to link the massive talent to opportunity one last thing that i'll say buzz which your listeners may or may not know is that the african uh, continent has cornered the market of 18 to 23 year olds we mm -hmm. simply have the largest number of young people in the world and our average uh, median age rather on the continent is 19. Wow. Most countries, 70% um, of Africa's population is under the age of 30. So put that into perspective, right? Mm -hmm. In the West where the uh, fertility rate is declining, if mm -hmm. you're in a university that is in the market of servicing 18 to 23 year olds mm -hmm. and you already have concentration risk in, is in India, China, where will you be looking? You will be looking to places like the African continent. Again, mm -hmm. that is the space that we are in and the, the service that we hope to be providing to more and more African um, students. Yeah, I mean, this is all this is all very amazing, you know, just for so many people in the US, I think we have just an understanding that's probably very, uh, I don't want to say narcissistic, but it's also very just about us, right? When we think about the college experience, we just assume everyone could just, you know, graduate, you know, if they don't get into college, they go to a community college. And then after that, they can transfer to any university. Um, but if you think about the global, the world and all the challenges that it has, you know, we do have the bulk of concentrations or a good second, good amount of universities here in the US, right? Um, and then access is very difficult in other parts of the world. I mean, just think, you know, I think of India so often, they have a billion people there in that within the entire region, right? And the the margins to get into a university there 
it's so slim. It's easier to get into Harvard here in the U.S. Uh, just purely by the statistics and the numbers than it is to get into a high-ranking university over there. And and from from your numbers, it seems very similar in Africa, a million to uh, one person. That, that that's incredible. Um, what are what are some of the uh, career paths that that people are looking for? Uh, is it is it primarily medical? Is that is that the is that the route a lot of African students are going through, or what what are they looking for when they try to apply for a university? So uh, I'll make a comment on your earlier point around you know the average American thinking about their own university experience, and then I'll respond to the career paths. It's not surprising that people. Um, have the experience that is their experience, right? Mm -hmm. But what I, I think we are, what the world is telling us is that even America is better off with greater diversity in its classrooms. Mm -hmm. If we go to the upheaval that we have had around racial justice in, in mm -hmm. this country in the last year, I think one of the big uh, takeaways there is that as a country, obviously the race questions remain fraught. Mm -hmm. Part of the reasons that they remain fraught is that we remain separate, um, less integrated than we might otherwise be. Mm -hmm. And that manifests itself in a classroom. When mm -hmm. you are having group projects to solve in university, mm -hmm. what are the chances that in that group you have you know, a Nigerian and a Kenyan in there? But mm -hmm. you know what, if you did, you mm -hmm. would not be capable of prejudice against mm -hmm. those people from those countries because you would have humanized, you would have had a human experience with them. Mm -hmm. You would have solved problems across difference. We want to increase the likelihood of that happening. That needs to happen with greater inclusion of black students in a variety of schools in this country, but also the international students and particularly parts of the world like Africa that are looked at with so much prejudice. Mm -hmm. So I think that is part of the, the, the space as well that we see a big gap and we see our work as contributing, making a contribution there. But to your question about career paths, we were looking at some of the data that we have. Uh, we have a, a database of African students who've gone to global universities, what can we say about the pathways that they take? Mm -hmm. And roughly 40 to 45% of African students in global, who have had experience in global universities, their first degree is in the STEM uh, discipline. So science, technology, math type areas. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have another maybe 20 to uh, or so percent who are in the business area. So people are mm -hmm. very much in the, in the science and technology areas. Mm -hmm. and, in some ways, there is something really interesting about having gone through a rigorous curriculum where you do well in those subjects and then you go to a global university to either mm -hmm. pursue that or related subjects. But students are academically very strong mm -hmm. and they can go to any variety of fields. But for us, for our underwriting, for better or worse, we do have to look at what are the income outcomes that are possible? What are the earning possibilities possible from a range of disciplines, which we lend to students going to. But I think the, the, the general point there is that there is a bigger focus on, on the science and technology spaces. I mean, that, that is really interesting. And I think a big part of it, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting in the US. I mean, we sort of brag about our education and a lot of these different things, you know, the public school education, but we don't we do have a high level of math anxiety in the U.S. We have very people that struggle with the sciences in the STEM fields. Um, but for whatever reason, people from Africa, people from India, people from China, they are better at uh, 
doing math. They're better at a lot of the science, science-based subjects. Um, and it's, and I think a big part of it is the, uh, the, the public school education systems uh, that you ha have all over there. Is that correct? There is a rigorous education system there. I never went to high school in the US, so I couldn't be able to comment on, on such anxiety. What I do know is that I recently spoke to a dean of a graduate school, um, and as a result of COVID, they were experiencing a 40%, no, 48% decline in their enrollments from mostly India, China, but their international student enrollment. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, Baz, he told me that he would not be able to offer many degrees at a master's level in computer science, many programs, mm -hmm. because those programs are populated 70% plus by foreign students. Mm -hmm. So many of our graduate level STEM uh, programs in the US mm -hmm. are populated not by American students, mm -hmm. but by foreign students. But that is not a problem because the world has always been hospitable to highly qualified foreign-born students. We've had hiccups in the, the U.S. immigration story just because that is one that is, you know, highly politicized. Mm -hmm. But it has always been in the past that we fling doors wide open for global talent, mm -hmm. including and especially in the sciences, because that enables great achievement using American resources. The challenge when we have the inward looking turns in, mm -hmm. in the immigration story, and then students are no longer incentivized to come here, is that we miss the fact um, that that is the highest, the best chance for growth in America is from that talent coming here. Mm -hmm. And when they choose to go to Canada or Australia or New Zealand, it is America's loss. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it matters that a local student does not want to go into a master's program in computer science and an Indian student does. It mm -hmm. matters when we then make it very difficult for the Indian or Kenyan student to stay and therefore they leave and America is increasingly having less and less of that talent mm -hmm. uh, building uh, in, in the US. So what I'm hopeful about is that the turn that we're taking is a more outward mm. looking turn and that there will be greater incentives for you know, the next generation of incredibly smart innovators and technologists to come to the best universities, many of which are in the US. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we've, we've sort of had this you know, America first mentality for a few years now. I mean, it's been there for a long time, but really just ramped up uh, for, for the past, you know, period of time. And I think uh, a lot of people just assume, I mean, there's just this understanding here that, that, that you know, the people that, that need the education the most that do best in education are people that are local here. But if you think of it, our greatest uh, inventors, our creators, problem solvers, people that are finding cures to diseases, there are people from the globe, from the global aspect of the world. There are people that come in to an American university and they just strive and just, you know, are so committed to solving challenges and, and creating opportunities, um, which I don't think many people still think enough about. Um, I do want to pivot, and, and, and this is sort of a new question I think that many people are thinking about right now in, in the pandemic uh, more, is what's the role of online education in international spaces? Are you, is it a space that people are thinking about? Not even coming to the U.S., but just learning, you know, from their own uh, communities? I think the education sector has 
faced a major, major uh, disruption as a result of COVID and a lot is being rethought. I, I have a friend who's a very thoughtful leader in the education space who told me that it used to be that online education was the unfortunate step, stepchild of <laughs> in-class education. And now that stepchild has been fully legitimized, brushed yeah. up, and now we're told, hey, you should still be paying $70,000 a year to have access to this education. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that part about the same. It shouldn't be that expensive because well, the costs are less, you know, I, I to run the program. But I think what's happening is that especially premium universities are not willing to rethink the cost of that degree, even when you're earning it mostly online. So mm -hmm. it's a very interesting time we're in, but mm -hmm. the pressure for the cost as a result of the push to online um, is going to be downwards. And that's mm -hmm. very exciting because many people who had been priced out of the education, the premium education, mm -hmm. if the price actually does go down you will see more and more people now having that dream of oh i can afford it because it's no longer seventy thousand; it's now mm -hmm. at 40 or it's no longer 40 it's now at 20 mm -hmm. we saw with um was it georgia tech that priced uh masters in engineering at seven thousand dollars and we saw with i think it was the university of illinois that priced an mba at twenty two thousand mm -hmm. dollars we are now getting to a place where massification is going to be possible at a global scale mm -hmm. and that, that is fantastic especially when we can use technology in its fullest, not when university education equals a classroom on Zoom, because yeah. that is not university education online. That is just an entry level, you know, stopgap. We are in crisis modality. But when yeah. we really have, you know, the kind of capacity that a place like Minerva Institute has with their forum, which is the most interactive uh, platform I've ever been on for learning, when mm. you have things like that at scale in a wider range of universities and online education can really start realizing its potential. Mm. It is going to be very, very exciting to see how that drives access. So the short answer to your question is yes, everybody is looking at online education and even looking at hybrid modalities mm -hmm. of education where you have, you know, most of your coursework education online, wherever you're from, and then you spend a few weeks in the sort of human face-to-face -face engagement, but that becomes dramatically less mm -hmm. costly than spending the entire time in a global campus. But it's exciting it's a very exciting time that that question is on the table yeah it's it's really interesting and you know i, I think unfortunately you know the, the experience that many people had over the past year with their student experience and learning online it was a zoom link where they went in and they were bored for about an hour but the actual online learning experience is much more than that right it's it's creating curriculum it's creating an online experience that engages you and and you feel you're within a classroom in many different ways you, should, you have your notes set up in there. You have places you can check, places you can test your, your knowledge of things. It's a whole experience. Um, but that's not how people got this whole year. The vast majority of universities did have to pivot and they got, you know, just a Zoom link. Um, but I think they have to think about it now, right? They have to go moving forward. And people are questioning the idea of just sitting in the classroom all day long. You know, people want a hybrid model. Students really like the idea of not having to be in class fully, they can learn from other places. So that is a global challenge. And I think higher education needs to think much harder because we have a lot of people that want to keep things the same post pandemic, even though, you know, keeping things the same is only going to hurt them. Um, my final question to you is, tell me about your journey just starting this organization. I know it 
a whole lot of work just to start a nonprofit or a business or anything. You know, how did it all happen and how did you begin the journey? Thank you, Buzz. Uh, before I answer that, let me just talk to the point you, you say about, you know, the, the, the hybrid and uh, the, the, the Zoom modality not having given students the best experience. Absolutely, it didn't. But I think everybody was in crisis mode. Mm -hmm. The world just shut down suddenly and we had to move, you know, 10 years speed in mm -hmm. a few months in terms of adoption of technologies that mm -hmm. were never on our radar as things to adopt. And as uni you know, universities need 17 committees to make a single decision, they yeah. needed to have, you know, 17 minutes to make that decision, mm -hmm. right? So all that, it suggests that everybody has done the best they can. Mm -hmm. Now that there is more breathing room possible, I think innovation can really enter the picture. So mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not to fault the universities for the fact that all they had was this, the, the Zoom link, but it's to say well, that- you know, I think they should have touched their endowments a little bit. I think many universities do have massive endowments. They could have made things a little bit easier for students, took some money from that, brought down the cost a little bit but uh, yeah no I think I think you're, you're <laughs> on to something there I think there is also the fact that the universities with the massive endowments are going to be fine you know it doesn't matter how this shakes up there yeah. is always going to be an 18 year old who wants to get to Ithaca uh, to attend Cornell and you know mm -hmm. to to Cambridge to uh, attend Harvard you know that is always going to be the case I think mm -hmm. the struggle is going to be the mid-tier universities who do not have so much of a cushion right how will this mm -hmm work and I think there's a lot of opportunity there but to your question about my story so I'm born and raised in Kenya mm -hmm. and I uh, was really lucky to get a scholarship to go to fifth and sixth form so this is pre-university um, education in the UK mm -hmm. and while there got also really lucky and got a scholarship to go to Cornell for mm -hmm. my undergrad I was excited to be in Cornell it's a lovely lovely university mm -hmm. it did everything that a university should do and more and um, while there I was working on a wide range of global issues I was very keen to enter international development and politics and you know the the space where change happens mm -hmm. um, and I, I was lucky to to get work in that sector I worked in human rights I worked in global health at the UN both the population fund and the world health organization mm -hmm. and during that time I was applying for grad school to the point mm -hmm. that I made earlier and applying and not getting money and applying again <laughs> um, and then I got an offer to go to Oxford for a master's mm -hmm. I went there for a master's and decided to enroll for a doctorate uh, my master's was funded my doctorate wasn't and mm -hmm. you know I was encountering the same problem I had encountered um, with the Harvard offer years yeah. before when I mentioned I had an offer with no money um, and so that really parked this issue in my parking lot buzz as an issue that needs to be solved and when I was talking to my father and you know many people I entered market research clearly quite a while ago mm -hmm. I was talking to people like my father and said yeah you know in the late 70s I spent two years trying to find a scholarship or money to study abroad and I didn't succeed so this isn't just something that I faced it was multi-generational mm -hmm. and the gap annually is roughly $25 billion worth wow. of demand for financing that is currently not being met mm -hmm. just for Africans holding offers to global universities. 
it mm. is big. And so after spending time working in the multilateral sector after graduating from Oxford, and that was the UN and the World Bank, mm. I still had the issue of not enough access for Africans mm. in my mind, because in many of the policy rooms I was in, there just weren't as many Africans as they ought to be for issues being discussed that have to do with the African continent. Yeah. And that wasn't just true in the sector uh, that the multilaterals deal with, but it's true in businesses. It's just true across mm -hmm. the, the, the world in decision making. And so I decided to leave the UN and start uh, the company HB Education Investments. So that is the story. I'm a non-traditional founder in that way. I made a career in a space that I was really excited about, but realized I had this bug that simply wouldn't go away. And we decided that the way to solve that isn't by creating an NGO and then mm -hmm. competing for the same grant dollars, but mm -hmm. actually by creating a company that is hugely successful. So we think of ourselves as creating the equivalent of a SOFI for Africa, right? Mm -hmm. You know, going for super prime students. That's what they are. When you're an mm -hmm. African student getting into a global university, you're really head and shoulders above the competition, right? Mm -hmm. um, and helping them get that financial opportunity to enroll, but mm -hmm. then they become a borrower that can access very many other financial services. Mm -hmm. And so that is the space that we're in. And we think that if we're massively successful, we can then have the kind of long-term impact mm -hmm. that uh, organizations in the not-for-profit sector would start out with. And that mm -hmm. long-term um, impact includes just shifting the perception of Africa globally. It is about having global decision makers who have the lived experience um, from Africa. And it's about transforming how Africa plays as an equal in the knowledge economy of the 21st century. I mean, this is, this is amazing. And I just think of, you know, first of all, having to struggle so much to get into a university and go through all these different challenges and then get into a university and then finding other solutions for other people. I mean, it just comes back down. I feel like there's a level of ambition that people have. And, you know, I don't know, was there a moment in your life that something just sparked and you just had so much ambition to go from, from the university and then go back and start an organization? Like, what really compelled you? Like, is there some moment that you just that, thought that I'm just going to go out there and change the world? You know, Baz, people do have those moments and I admire them. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I, I'm one of, I'm, I, I stew on issues. So, mm -hmm. you know, clearly I was stewing on this from the time I missed uh, the, the Harvard opportunity and continued stewing on it when I uh, struggled to finance my Oxford education and continued stewing on it as mm -hmm. I worked in the multilateral spaces until I finally gathered the courage. And for me, it mm -hmm. took a lot of courage to say, you know what, I have to fix this. I will not, I cannot hope that somebody else will fix it. Mm -hmm. I have to give it a really good shot at fixing it. So for me, it was a, an exercise in, you know, endless market research, mm -hmm. which was not really market research. It was opening my eyes out to the various ways in which this pain point I had experienced was continuing mm. to be expressed and not being addressed. And then an exercise in gathering the courage to be able mm. to step out to do it. But in terms of change making and problem solving, I've always been the person who is tinkering and creating solutions for problems. So when I was in Cornell, the way what that looked like is that HIV was a very big and continues to be a big issue in my home country. And mm -hmm. I knew family 
and, and friends that were affected. So when I was at Cornell, I started an organization that is advocating for youth inclusion in HIV policymaking. It actually became a global platform that still exists today, the youth force um, that basically gathers at every international AIDS conference, gathers young people in a series of platforms to make sure that they're being listened to as part of policymaking. But that's because here I was in a space where I could do something about something that was a problem where mm -hmm. I came from, right? So I've always been that problem solver. When I was in Oxford, there, you know, it's a it's a big bureaucracy with mm -hmm. you know loads of different colleges and people are studying the same things in different corners. They don't talk to each other. <laughs> I created Oxford Transitional Justice Research, which was a mm -hmm. platform for people working in particular sections of post-conflict mm -hmm. country issues. And that still remains today. So solving problems and you know making sure that that person who has the demand is being met by a supply or by a service is something that I've done a number of times before. So this is just an instance of that, but it's something that is a, a lot bigger and whose impact will be generational once we get to the level of success that we hope to get to. Well, you know, you know how the saying goes, all it does take is one person who's really committed. Uh, and, I, and I think you're really committed, Lydia. It's, it's been a great conversation. You know, I have a great hope to see what you do in the future. I can't wait to see all the different change you're making. I mean, you have so many different ideas and I feel like you're just going to continue to make change in the world. Uh Thank you guys for listening to The Boz Show. Make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share.